Harvey One, we thank you for joining us today for this Safety and Health webcast sponsored by Cordy. Wanted to let you know as you file in that you are in the right place. Just going to allow about another minute or so for people to get settled and logged on before we get started with the presentation. Hello again and welcome everyone. Want to let you know that you are in the right place for the Safety and Health webinar sponsored by Cordy. Just going to allow another 30 seconds or so for everyone to get settled before we get going. Again, we appreciate you joining us today. Hello everyone and welcome to today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Make it about them how to make your risk management process more employee-centric, sponsored by Cority. My name is Kevin Drulli. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health Magazine and will, and will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. We hope you all are safe and well. In a few minutes, we'll start a presentation, but first let's review some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and may not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health Magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not necessarily mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we'll conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply click the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen, type your question, and click the send button. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I'll let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast will be archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, please visit safetyandhealthmagazine.com events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speaker today is Sean Baldry, Senior Product Marketing Manager at Cordy. Sean supports the organization's health and safety solutions. He has worked in the occupational health and safety field for nearly two decades with leading global corporations in the construction, mining, automotive, and manufacturing sectors. He also is a Canadian registered safety professional. Again, we thank you all for tuning into this presentation. Sean, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Great, thanks a lot, Kevin, and uh, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Really glad you could join today, and I hope everyone is uh, staying safe and healthy. So I'd like to kick things off by asking everyone to imagine that you're visiting relatives out of town for the holidays. Maybe it's Thanksgiving or Christmas. And as you sit down to dinner, you look out the window and you notice that it started snowing. And as dinner progresses, you notice that the snow is coming down a little bit harder. And a relative turns to you and mentions that you should probably consider spending the night, but you're not so sure, you have a couple things to do, a few errands to run the next day, but your relative insists. So in that situation, what would you do? How would you determine whether to spend the night or whether to uh, make the journey back home? Well, I, I think for most, most of us, we'd likely start by collecting some initial information. We'd probably check the weather forecast to assess how much snow is expected, where the conditions are going to be worse, or whether whiteouts are happening. We might then check traffic reports to get a sense of road conditions or traffic volumes. We might even be planning a few alternative routes. And then we'd likely consider things like how much gas do we have in the car, whether we have windshield wipers that are in good condition and that the wiper fluid is topped up. And we might even take into account whether we have snow tires on the vehicle. But let's assume for a minute that with all this collected information and after weighing all the pros and cons, we decide that if we take our time, our risk of getting into an accident in these conditions is low or it's, it's certainly tolerable. So after dinner, you say goodbye to your family and you pull out of the driveway. And a few hours later, you find yourself in the ditch after losing control of your vehicle. So what happened? Hadn't we planned appropriately? Hadn't we collected all the relevant data, identified the hazards, assessed the risks, and planned appropriate mitigation measures to ensure we had that safe drive home? And if not, what did we miss? 
And, and what this scenario really describes is a very common problem in how most organizations approach risk management. In most cases, organizations focus on identifying hazards or controlling risks related to either the tasks that are, they're performing or the environments in which they're performing them. But what firms routinely fail to account for is the impact that individual factors have on our overall risk exposure. So in other words, how do the physical abilities, mental states, energy levels, or even medical issues of the individuals involved influence the degree of risk to which they're exposed? So in our example, while we assess the impact of weather, of road conditions, and vehicle maintenance on our ability to get home safely, what we failed to account for was how a large meal and perhaps the time of day might impact our fatigue levels and reduce our ability to stay awake at the wheel. And yet, if we could introduce these individual factors into how organizations regularly approach risk management, we'd be more likely to be able to create a much more intimate, relevant, and accurate view of risk for every employee which ultimately contributes to better risk management and, and better overall EHS performance. And that's really what I wanna talk about today. So over the next 45 minutes, I'd like to explore how organizations can integrate this concept of individual factors more directly and purposefully into their existing risk management processes and really to describe the inherent value that doing so can bring to your business's safety performance. And to do so, we'll break the conversation down into a few parts. So firstly, we'll take a quick look back in time to help us understand where the idea of individual factors came from. Next, we'll review why individual factors and personal differences are so critical to creating a more holistic, employee-centric view of risk. We'll talk about how integrating individual factors into risk assessment practices can help us in building greater workforce engagement and how we manage risk day to day. And finally, we'll explore how technology uh, can provide us with new tools to support the idea of employee-centric risk management within our workplaces. So to understand why we've traditionally failed to consider individual factors in how we view and manage risk, we first really need to look back at the origins of accident history. And for any of you who have ever studied accident history in the past, you've likely heard of Frederick Taylor. So Taylor was fascinated with maximizing, oh, excuse me, with maximizing human performance in industrial assembly line type settings in the early 20th century. And what he proposed was that there was a single best way to conduct any task. And according to Taylor, to achieve optimal human performance, management had to select individuals with the capabilities that were best aligned to that optimized work process, and then stringently enforce worker adherence to identified best practices and working conditions. And, and really, Taylor wasn't at all interested in the effect of individual differences on human performance. Instead, he argued that management could achieve optimal performance from any individual which, with the adequate uh, levels of motiv uh, motivation, surveillance, and training. And then, uh, you know, a few years later, Herbert Heinrich came along and he introduced his domino theory, in which he argued that 90% plus of accidents were the result of workers' unsafe actions or behaviors. And Heinrich really attributed the causes of these unsafe acts to inherent flaws in the individual, which he argued were largely influenced by their culture and their ancestry. And while really Heinrich believed that management was duty bound to identify and address risk in the workplace, considering the assumption that, you know, close to 100% or, you know, over 90% of accidents were caused by people, companies began focusing heavily on trying to fix that quote unquote flawed individual, primarily through increasing levels of discipline, training and supervision. So what's key to remember here is that these theories shared a common assumption that all employees were virtually indistinguishable, meaning that under the right set of conditions, every employee could achieve optimal performance with appropriate levels of training, supervision, and reinforcement. And in this sense, there was really no impetus to adjust the work or to adjust the workplace to account for individual needs, differences, or abilities. And yet these theories really started to come under increased scrutiny, uh, especially during World War II. So back in the early 1940s, the U.S. Army was struggling with a lot of 
you know, unexplained crashes of military aircraft, especially during landing maneuvers. And initially, the Army thought that the crashes were simply the result of pilot error. And unsurprisingly, they started to apply standard interventions at the time, namely training and discipline, to prevent further accidents. But those didn't work. And that's because what the Army soon discovered was that as military equipment and systems grew in complexity and the working conditions around those systems became more variable, operators were making more unintended errors when attempting to execute particular tasks, particularly in high stress conditions. And what the Army learned was that the design of these systems didn't adequately account for all the multiple variables that ultimately influence human performance, human failure, and thus the risk of accidents. And the shift in thinking you know, eventually evolved into the study of human factors engineering, which really had the ultimate goal of designing systems that optimize performance, safety, and well-being. And if we look at it in simplistic terms, human factors simply considers the interaction of humans with multiple variables in a system, which tend to be primarily characterized by either the workplace, including the design and layout of the workspace, the design of human machine interfaces, and, and simply the overall work environment. It would include the organization, including policies, procedures, the organization of work, management decisions, workload, and communications, as well as the people, specifically the individual factors and personal differences in attributes and skills and knowledge, behavior, et cetera. And the overreaching thought was that by addressing the interaction of these different variables within the system, we should be able to pinpoint mismatches between system demands and operator abilities that can contribute to human error, and if we, if which we, which we don't address, could lead to deviation, upset, harm, or other some other type of loss. And from that point, organizations began to recognize that in order to reduce the probability of human failure and its influence on the, the emergence of of injury and illness, human factors principles had to be incorporated into our existing safety management practices. And that included everything from incident investigation and root cause analysis, to equipment design and procurement, to even pre-task risk assessment. And, and what's important is this multiple variable view of risk was further strengthened toward the, the beginning of, of this millennium when NIOSH launched its Total Worker Health Initiative. And for those unfamiliar with Total Worker Health, it simply encouraged organizations to start looking at risk much more holistically and challenged how we perceive, assess, and manage risk at work. So whereas our view of workplace risk might have been traditionally limited to task-based risk factors, risk assessment would now need to consider the effect of the environment and psychosocial factors, along with individual differences in personal choice and, and how those those factors would collectively and cumulatively impact what we would call the worker's total risk burden. So doing so meant that businesses needed to do two things. First, they needed to better educate their workers on the multiple dimensions of risk, including individual factors, so that they could be considered in how work was planned and executed in real time. And they also had to look for and provide new tools and guidance to frontline employees in order to prompt them to consider these factors when assessing risk in their daily activities. So now that we know how individual factors were introduced into the risk conversation, let's explore the idea of individual factors a little bit further. Specifically, what specific issues does the term individual factors really encompass? And why is it important to consider these factors when assessing risk in the workplace? So individual factors can be both strengths and weaknesses depending on the demands of a specific task. So if we wanna protect people at work, we need to first raise their awareness of how these individual differences can impact their safety performance and, and by that nature, their risk susceptibility. So what I've done here is I've broken down individual factors into six subcategories for simplicity's sake. So I'd like to review those now just to give everyone a sense of what we're talking about. So the first subcategory would cover physical differences. So we know that every person is built differently with different capabilities based on agility, strength, dexterity, coordination, et cetera. 
Now, these items have been traditionally considered in ergonomic design principles for equipment, but again, they're less frequently considered by frontline operators when engaging in a particular task. And, and really, since soft tissue injuries account for the majority of, of non-fatal accidents that occur in, in workplaces now, considering physical differences when planning work and when selecting controls to, to protect people from risk provides us with another ample opportunity to eliminate risk really early on in the process. After physical differences comes mental differences. Uh, individual workers can, as we all know, greatly uh, differ in their mental, mental and cognitive capabilities, which in turn can impact their risk exposure. This is everything from memory to cognition to language to literacy, etc. Mental capabilities, including language and processing speed, those are especially important when we're considering safety critical tasks or activities that have very high risk and very low recoverability, when operators need to be able to follow procedures closely and execute tasks uh, correctly in, in a given sequence. And really failure to account for these mental challenges could place an operator at undue risk. And, and this is particularly important when we consider how, how much more multicultural and multilinguistic our, our workplaces have become over time. Uh, our next consideration or, or subcategory concerns age. We know that workforce demographics, particularly in Western countries, have significantly changed over the past two decades. And with gains in life expectancy, not, not least of which uh, concerns uh, retirement laws and retirement age, Older adults are remaining in the, in the workforce longer than in years past. And, and research has shown that older employees on average are at both increased risk of injury uh, and also experience longer recovery times post-injury than their younger counterparts. So to effectively reduce the risk of harm, age-related factors should be considered in how work is organized, how it's planned and how it's executed, including things like cycle times or work rest cycles, things of that nature. After age, uh, we should be considering gender. We know intuitively that individuals of different genders can have different biological, physiological, environmental vulnerabilities, and those need to be accounted for when we're planning work and when we're executing that work. So for instance, um, men on average are more susceptible to color blindness that can, that can impact their ability to read signs and, and decipher and interpret critical signals in the workplace. So those should be considered uh, in how we design work. In contrast, research has shown that women on average are subjected to more incidents of workplace violence than their male counterparts. So while workplace violence might be identified as a potential hazard for all workers engaged in a specific task, consideration to gender-based differences might help inform our organization's approach to what specific safeguards are needed by female employees as opposed to male employees in, in some circumstances. Next, we have to consider personal health. You know, we know that specific medical conditions and health risk factors could place individuals at increased risk of exposure uh, or a higher risk of sustaining an injury depending on the task. So as an example, a worker with a history of vertigo has a higher, a higher risk of falls, especially when they're working at height. So those personal health variables should be considered when we determine both who should perform a certain task, as well as what controls or tools are needed to help those individuals effectively mitigate their elevated risk exposure when performing those tasks, if, if that is a possibility. And finally, you know, our last subcategory concerns personal choice. And here it's often our, our habits, our decisions, our behaviors can undermine the controls that are recommended in a given situation and can increase our susceptibility to harm. So really reducing overall employee risk in work really needs to take into account how decisions, behaviors, and actions could strengthen as well as undermine control measures, or perhaps even help us identify what additional supports are required for particular workers, depending on where they sit uh, with respect to their individual factors. So really, despite how they can help us significantly improve how we plan and mitigate risks associated with our activities, individual factors are rarely, if ever, considered in how most companies and their workers approach risk 
assessment and risk management. And in my view, that's largely an artifact of how we've been traditionally trained to perform risk assessments over the years. So pictured on the left is an example of a typical workplace hazard assessment form. Now, at most companies, the standard process involves taking a task, breaking it down into its component parts, identifying hazards at each task step, assessing the relative risk of those hazards at, that, at, at each of those steps, and proposing control measures to mitigate those risks. And unfortunately, 99% of, of our attention in this process is focused on hazards related to a task, i.e. what we're doing or the environment where we're doing it, and little attention is placed on how individual factors could increase or decrease our susceptibility to those risks. So for example, if we zero in on, on a portion of this assessment, if we consider a lawn maintenance activity, workers are likely hyper-focused on the risk of being struck by the rotating lawnmower blade, but likely put little, if any, consideration to how their fatigue levels or, or rushing, you know, in, and certain pressures that, that are imposed by the work organization, how those might impair their judgment and cause them to act in ways that actually bring them in closer proximity to that rotating blade. So such as, you know, the desire to clear uh, clogged grass from that running lawnmower without shutting it down and locking it out appropriately. And one problem uh, that we have is that the tools that we typically use to uh, document risk assessments and guide employees through those risk assessments often lack any specific prompts to get employees to focus on those individual factors. So here on the right, I've provided an excerpt of a risk assessment tool that I used to use at a, at a former employer. And hopefully you can see it. I realize that, that the font is pretty small, but hopefully here you can see that while we provided prompts to get workers to focus on specific hazards, such as environmental hazards, ergonomic, material, worksite, what have you, there were no specific prompts to alert workers to the relevant individual factors that might come into play when they're planning and executing that task. So this, this invariably leads us to a question, how could we incorporate individual factors more deliberately into our standard risk assessment and control process in order to create a more holistic and employee-centric view of risk? So I, I just wanna walk through a scenario here to, to paint a picture. So as we've discussed, most organizations approach risk assessment from a purely task-based perspective. They start by identifying hazards that are associated with a common task, a process, or an asset, and then they assess the risk of those hazards contributing to harm. From there, these firms identify and implement controls or standards of practice to help lower that identified risk to a tolerable level. And then once those controls are in place, these organizations leverage tools like audits and inspections and jobs, uh, job observations, just to name a few, uh, to help validate both the presence and the effectiveness of those controls, which may lead in turn to more corrective actions, process changes, uh, adjustments in, in the risk assessment process itself, what have you. And it's really this task-based risk process is normally a collective exercise involving all employees engaged in a task where they seek to identify broad controls to manage risk for all individuals involved. But again, there is little, if any, consideration to the effect that individuals, individual factors can have on exposure. But if we were to introduce an adjoining individual exercise through which every employee could identify and assess the effect of their individual factors on their risk exposure in a given activity, we could recommend additional controls or describe how existing controls might be able to be modified to help that individual reduce their personal risk exposure to a tolerable level. And most importantly, we could use this individual assessment to help educate employees on the effects of their individual factors here, particularly around personal choice, their habits, their decisions, their actions, and how that can impact their risk exposure, thereby providing another opportunity to help modify behavior in a way that lowers risk. So it's really, the idea here is integrating these two processes would help organizations create a much more holistic view of risk that's centered not on an asset or a process, but on an individual. So up to now, we've discussed where individual factors came from, why they're relevant and, and should be included in how organizations assess and manage risk in their workplace. 
let's now explore how to integrate this approach into our existing risk assessment and, and control process and how doing so can help us improve our levels of employee participation and risk management. But before we do that, uh, we do have a short audience poll that we'd like to run to help us better understand your organization's challenges with employee uh, engagement and risk. So specifically, the question that we're asking is, what are the key issues with your current risk assessment process that discourage employees from participating? Now, we've provided a, a list of potential responses as you can see on the screen. So please read through the list and select and all responses that you think are applicable to your business. And we'll give everybody about you know, 20 to, to 30 seconds to respond. And then on the, on the other side, we'll review the aggregated results together to see what we have. So you know, you'll see that some of the responses that, that we've provided, maybe your risk assessment process is too complex. Maybe it's difficult to understand and difficult to follow. Maybe it's just too long and too bureaucratic. It's just too paperwork heavy and that, that pushes people away. Maybe it's too rigid and uh, it's not ideally designed for frontline workers. Maybe uh, it doesn't provide any guidance on what to do after you've found that risk or, or maybe workers just feel that it's not relevant to them or maybe you're, you're unsure. So I'm starting to see uh, responses coming in. It's interesting, there's, there's quite a, a degree of spread uh, across the categories. But what's really interesting um, is the second one from the bottom, workers feel that the process isn't useful or relevant to them. That shouldn't come as a surprise as, as as uncomfortable as what that is, that uh, shouldn't come as a surprise, but it's interesting. We're seeing uh, quite a degree of spread across these categories, which is, uh, which is very interesting to dig into. So I, I do thank everybody for participating. That's, uh, that's certainly appreciated. So let's dig, um, let's dig a little bit further into uh, some of these reasons, you know, some of the reasons that are frequently, uh, frequently cited as why employees often decline to participate in, uh, in risk management. And uh, what I'll caution here is this is not an ex exhaustive list, so please don't, uh, please don't consider it as such. So one of the most common complaints from uh, frontline employees is that risk management processes are overly bureaucratic, they're paperwork producing, CYA exercises that are really more concerned from their perspective at creating a paper trail for auditing or maybe protecting the company from legal liability than actually helping employees effectively manage risk of their in their work. And as a result, employees tend to see this as, as really a tick the box exercise that does little to increase their risk awareness and, and certainly doesn't give them any sort of insight into how to, ma how to mitigate uh, the risks that they do identify. Next, you know, in some cases, organizations require that employees review a standard risk assessment that's been previously developed by, you know, a, a quote unquote expert before undertaking a particular task. These are kind of those standard uh, predetermined job hazard analyses and things like that. Unfortunately, employees often find these tools of limited value, specifically because they're designed around that idealized version of the task. And we all know that that idealized version rarely, if ever, happens. And, it, and the, that standard process doesn't take into account the variability between that idealized scenario and the circumstances to which the workers are actually exposed when that work is done. And as a result, employees tend to give these risk management tools pretty minimal consideration. Um, and the tools really do little to engage workers in thinking about how to, how to effectively mitigate risk as it's presented to them. Um, you know, at times organizations simply err because they make the process too complex. We use big words, you know, we use complex principles, methodologies, frameworks. We give out complicated risk calculations that really do little to help that individual on the front line understand what they're dealing with. And, and interestingly, studies have shown that people have trouble in general, just simply understanding probability. So simply giving a worker a risk probability score by itself is not really going to help improve their ability to make better decisions around risk. Um, you, know, you know, next we have, you know, this idea of, of it not being useful. We've mentioned it many times, but one of the most common issues with risk management processes is, is that they're overly focused on helping individuals identify hazards and, and in some cases quantify risk scores, but they really offer little, little assistance or guidance 
on what to actually do to control or eliminate that hazard once we've identified it. And in this case, workers might understand what hazards they're exposed to, but they're often left really ill-equipped on what to do to deal with it. And lastly, uh, and, and certainly this was reflected in the poll that we, we just ran, the, one of the biggest barriers in getting workers to be more engaged in risk management is that the workers simply believe that the risk information that they're getting from the process isn't meaningful. It doesn't speak to their unique experiences, their challenges, their exposures, their needs, in a sense, all those individual factors that we've been talking about. And therefore, it's perceived as, as really offering little value. And since most organizations approach risk management from that task perspective, many workers fail to see how the process and its outputs are really relevant to them. So that begs the question, you know, how can we encourage frontline workers to become more engaged in our risk management practices? And interestingly, there's been some research conducted over the past two decades that has revealed that our willingness as individuals to actively engage in risk management is really driven by four factors. So to start, uh, the first thing that we need to do is acknowledge that people are generally more concerned on a day-to-day -day basis about doing their job well than being consciously aware of the risk to which they're exposed while they're doing that job, right? So to get employees more involved in risk management, organizations need to first focus on how to apply specific triggers in the workplace to consciously raise employees' awareness of the things that could harm them at work. You know, toolbox talks and uh, take five approaches, for example, those are all ways in which businesses help shake their employees out of autopilot and refocus awareness around workplace hazards. So the first thing that we need to consider in getting people more engaged is how do we increase their risk awareness? And, and what's tied to that is, is you know, uh, an acknowledgement that simply knowing about a hazard isn't enough to compel us to act to control it. And, and you know, we can only, we only need to look at um, public service announcements around smoking as an example to, to get us to understand this, right? Um, we can give information. It doesn't necessarily compel everybody to act accordingly. And what we need to recognize is that people need to feel that they are individually vulnerable to a hazard that they're greater, that their risk is greater than the average person to really compel them to act. And it's this perception of vulnerability that is, is particularly important, and it's largely influenced by our experience, our education, and our culture. But what we need to remember is that people in general are particularly bad at judging risk. We tend to underestimate our own vulnerability, and we overestimate the vulnerability of others in a given activity. So to get employees more engaged in risk, we need to give them a means to objectively measure and visualize their own risk vulnerability in a way that helps address some of those individual biases that, that might be influencing where they see their, their particular risk level. After that, if we want our frontline employees to assume greater ownership over risk, we need to ensure that they feel that they can uh, that they have the ability, the resources, the authority to take action to address that risk. So in other words, people need to believe that they can actually control the risks that they face by their own actions, or minimally that they have access to resources that can assist them to address that risk in a timely manner. And unfortunately, a lot of organizations actually remove employees from ownership over correcting their identified hazards. But it, conversely, by giving frontline employees more ownership over risk control, it really requires us to provide them with better guidance and to give them a little bit more decision-making autonomy over how they figure out how to adjust that risk in the best way that they see fit. And finally, the, la you know, the last thing that we have to consider in encouraging people to get more engaged in risk is that we have to acknowledge that whether or not an employee engages in risk is really dependent on the expectations that are set forth by the company culture. So if management tacitly accepts a poorly performed risk assessment before an activity is conducted or they allow an activity to continue despite a lack of, of identified controls, then employees will never really see the need to actively manage risk on their own as a shared responsibility between themselves and management.
So that really brings us to this last section. And, and in this last section, I'd like to talk about how we can bring all of these ideas together to create a more employee-centric approach to risk management. So spe uh, specifically, how can we integrate individual factors more deliberately in how we assess and manage risk in our work? How can we design our process to encourage more employee engagement and employee ownership in risk identification, assessment, and control? And how can we leverage technology, if, if, if possible, to provide workers with the tools that they need to visualize and manage those risks in the field in real time? So what we're illustrating here is, is simply a potential model for introducing an employee-centric risk approach to your business. Uh, and, and certainly it's not the only model that could exist, uh, but it's just something that we've been working on here at Cordy for, for some time. So the model consists of four steps. Step number one uh, concerns individual factors. So the first thing that we have to consider is businesses would create or need to create their employee-centric risk process by first identifying the individual factors that are applicable to their workforce. So, you know, we need to acknowledge that the factors that are selected and, and you know, pulled together into uh, uh, an inventory of factors, for lack of a better term, will be unique to every workplace. So those, those businesses would need to have the capabilities of, of picking through a list and selecting the, the individual factors that are, are most applicable to them. Each individual factor would include a variation or, or several variations around an ideal that would either increase or decrease an individual's risk exposure if selected. So as an example, let's assume that respirators are recommended for a task. Individual factors including gender differences. So, you know, with respect to the sizes of available equipment, will those sizes fit all the genders within the workplace? Underlying health conditions, whether individuals have asthma or some, you know, COPD or some other uh, respiratory-related health issue, and how individuals normally wear that equipment would all be relevant as individual factors to include in that inventory. If, if you know, respiratory equipment is something that's of interest to you. The next step involves, after we built uh, those inventories, involves employee self-assessment. So really building urgency to act on risk, as we know, requires that individuals understand their personal vulnerability. And in this respect, once those, that inventory of individual factors is created, we can develop tools with which we can allow employees to assess themselves against specific individual factors to help them create their own individual risk profile. And by associating risk scores to those factors, employees would be able to see exactly what individual factors have a, a more significant influence on their overall risk exposure. Is there a particular factor like a physical issue, uh, a, a learning issue, uh, an age-related issue that has a higher significance or a higher influence on their exposure relative to somebody else? And what would that mean in terms of the controls that would be needed to protect that individual? After self-assessment comes the idea of tailored intervention. So remember that our willingness to engage in managing risk is heavily influenced by whether we believe we can control these risks to which we're exposed. Tailored intervention or that tailored intervention step is really about empowering the frontline employee to identify and resolve risks on their own by providing them with access to resources that will help guide them on what to do to manage those identified problems. So this is really where we're getting into that idea of, of, prescri uh, of prescription, right? Where we're not only identifying risk, but we're, we're providing insights to the individuals in real time to say, now that you know that you're facing this issue, what can you do about it? And where, you know, the other thing that we have to consider is where the issue is too complex for that individual to resolve, we need to be able to provide a means for that individual to request assistance from one of the organization's EHS experts if those, those individuals can help them uh, deal with the problems that they're facing. And, and really the last step in this process really concerns continuous improvement. Any employee-centric risk pro, uh, program should track specific me uh, metrics to help us evaluate its effectiveness, as well as to identify successes, best practices, lessons learned, and make sure that those can be shared broadly through the organization. And that information can also provide the business with insight on 
you know, potentially what kind of strategic investments are needed in certain areas to, to help I, uh, identify broader issues, as well as where can we apply specific training and resources to at an individual level to really help individual employees better manage their individual risk profile. So, you know, the, the next question becomes, how might technology support this employee-centric model of risk in the field? So what I'll do over the last couple of minutes is just give you a perspective on how this might look if it was included in, in a, a software interface. So as mentioned, um, the organization would first create, its first step would be to create that inventory of applicable individual factors or, or sub-factors relevant to its workforce and relevant to its operations. And once those, those inventories are defined, the organization would incorporate these factors into one or more assessment tools that employees would be able to access, you know, possibly through a mobile app, through a mobile device, so they can access these tools wherever they are. And what I've provided here is just an example of how that might look uh, to an end user, somebody at the front line. So each question that we ask through, through uh, an assessment module or a questionnaire uh, would be associated or could be associated with a particular individual factor where the employee would select the option that's most applicable to them. And each option would have an associated risk multiplier based on how much the option varies from the ideal. And, and really the rule here is more variation means more risk. So as an example, I'm showing uh, a question that relates to how you would wear a mask or a respirator. Uh, obviously, the, wearing it correctly, we might say that that has zero risk associated with it, but how we remove that mask or wear it perhaps under the nose or under the chin, we might apply different risk scores to just kind of give us a, a relative ranking of are certain behaviors more risky than others. And by answering these questions, the employees' responses would be aggregated or could be aggregated into an inventory table in the software, which would help create that individual risk profile. So, you know, we could apply a risk score or a risk color, which could be associated with each option selected and then aggregated. And, and in totality, it's gonna give us a picture of one individual's risk profile and how that's unique relative to somebody else. Technology would also be give us the opportunity to easily visualize the results of those completed assessments and really help or really allow employees to see in real time how their individual differences either increase or decrease their risk exposure. And I've provided here an example of how an individual risk profile might look in, in a software interface uh, described on the left here. So in this view, the employee might have an overall individual risk profile, right? And, and in this case, it's marked as moderate with each individual risk factor listed underneath. Um, and, and you know, together those risk factors or those individual factors uh, influence that overall risk uh, profile. And a good interface would ensure that the information is relevant. It must be simple to understand. It must be clear, it, it must help clearly describe to the individual what is influencing that risk score and, and most importantly, what they can do about it. And in this example, as I, I've, I've you know, focused on this idea that we would have these action buttons under each factor, which if the employee were to click on it, perhaps it would give that employee uh, a list of potential recommendations you know, that they could go through in sequence and it would give them some sort of guidance or indication of, here's what is influencing that risk score. If you were to take these particular recommendations, it would help lower that score and then reduce your individual risk profile down to a more tolerable level. And lastly, what we're showing here is just an example of what that might look if we go that layer further. So by clicking on any of those recommendations from the list, the user might be presented with information on the individual factor or subfactor of concern. And that might include everything from information detailing why the individual factor or the variation around that factor is a concern. So really the idea here is the information strengthens risk awareness and perception. Uh, it might provide us with guidance for the employee on how to address the issue, right? We had mentioned earlier that um, part of the concern that we have in managing risk or, or really why 
um, frontline employees believe that a lot of risk assessment and management uh, processes are, are not relevant or useful to them is it doesn't give them any sort of insight into what do I do with this risk once I found it? And, and what we can do here is provide some prescription, some prescribed ideas on here's how you could tackle that issue. And lastly, the user interface might be able to give options, or really it should give options, to the employee to be able to update the status of those actions in real time, either indicating that, hey, I'm still working on that issue, uh, I've resolved that issue, or, or even perhaps maybe the issue exceeds my, my skill set and I really need some assistance from somebody in the organization to help me uh, resolve it. What's important to note is uh, really what we want is we want those issue resolution guidelines or, or those recommendations to be customizable because we know that our workplaces are different. So having one kind of canned way of addressing something is not going to help us, nor is it if we had uh, recommendations that are very generic, um, that's not particularly going to be helpful. So we want to have that ability to customize those recommendations to make sure it reflects the things that our people are dealing with and, and kind of the nature of our workplaces. This approach to risk self-assessment not only gives workers more agency and ownership over the risk profile, but it really ensures on the other side that your EHS experts are focused only on the most complex issues. So they're not getting pulled into everything, but they're really getting called to help address the issues that are most complex or, or, or highest risk and really allowing employees to not only identify hazards, but really giving them the, the ability to address those hazards and building that ownership that we know is needed for, for better safety culture and better safety performance. So hopefully I've provided uh, a simple example of how technology uh, is being explored and, and how it could be used to, to begin to integrate some of these principles of individual factors into how our organizations approach uh, risk management. So in summary, uh, you know, I will acknowledge that we've covered a lot of information today. So um, if I had to leave you with uh, a couple of points, the four points that I'd like to leave you with are, are these individual factors are critical to understand and manage risk within your business. They exist. They are influencing how your, your people are working and interfacing with risk. Um, and, and we need to put a little bit more attention to it. I would encourage you guys to look for ways to begin to integrate individual factors into your risk management processes or, or even more simply into the conversation of risk in your workplaces. And what we might find is that there's gonna be um, a lot of interesting things coming out of uh, the frontline employees that we might not have considered, but it's actually gonna help them uh, perform their work much more efficiently and much more safely. Keep in mind that when we're thinking about engagement, keep in mind that there are four factors that we have to be thinking about. Risk awareness, risk perception, our ability to control, and the influence that culture has on our, our willingness to engage. And just remember that there are emerging technologies um, that that are coming out that exist that can assist you in creating and deploying this this you know a much more employee centric risk process um, and uh, you know there's certainly a, a lot of, of vendors out there that that are willing to to assist um, so if that's of interest please uh, please look further into that now before I hand uh, the presentation back to Kevin for any questions that you might have I just wanted to share my contact information quickly um, and just to say that I hope you enjoyed the webinar. I hope it was uh, informative. Um, and we'd certainly, uh, on behalf of Cordy, we'd certainly love to hear from you. Um, if you have interest in, in continuing this conversation, please reach out to us. Uh, we'd be more than delighted to uh, continue this conversation and really you know, understand how we can help you build a much more employee-centric view of risk in your business. So with that, I will hand it back to Kevin for questions that might've come up. Well, excellent. Uh, great job, Sean. Thanks for sharing your insights and expertise. Before we do start the Q&A, just want to let everyone know about the evaluation survey that we're asking you to complete. The survey will open in a different screen after this webinar. Your input is very important to us as it helps us improve our future webcasts. Um, as Sean mentioned, we do have some, some questions in the hopper, but if one has just sprung to mind or something you wanted to ask, simply click that Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. And if we don't get to that question today, all of our unanswered questions will be forwarded along to Sean. So with that, we'll get the, the Q&A rolling. First one, Sean, um, what is the best way to differentiate individual factors from HR's definition of discrimination? 
the, uh, the attendee writes, you know, I feel like there could be pushback when stating things like this hazard applies more to one gender than the other. Yeah, you know what, that is, uh, that is certainly a great question. I, I would say my take on this, and, and I'll say my caveat to this is uh, take what, what I say with a grain of salt. And, and if we're, cons we're, we're concerned about discrimination, that has to be a conversation that concerns your HR and your legal teams. But the, the way that I look at, at the question of individual factors is um, I think one of the things that we have to acknowledge is it requires a degree of trust that's built within the organization, because if there's a concern that that, you know, presenting individual factors is going to provide uh, ammunition, for lack of a better term, that that could lead us down a, a discrimination route, um, that's something that we have to be mindful of right out of the gate. But the idea, you know, that of, of looking at or including individual factors, I like to think of it from a perspective of getting the individual involved, um, because what we're trying to do is get them to determine, are there particular nuances and their kind of individual profile that they believe is um, causing them more risk? And really, the, the, the goal here is not to exclude anyone or, or remove anyone from work or create some sort of material loss, but it's really just to help acknowledge that there are issues that um, place individuals at at higher risk, and and it doesn't necessarily have to be very um, very kind of tenuous arguments. Like uh, one of the examples that I I constantly heard um, in in my time in in the in the industry was um, we had a lot of of female employees that um, would argue that while we had you know certain PPE requirements like um, hand protection requirements a lot of the PPE that was actually stocked at the site didn't fit them. So it became this issue of it's either too small uh, and that creates some concerns for that individual. It's too big and, and there's associations with grip strength or, or things like that, or, um, or they simply don't wear them at all because it doesn't fit them. And then by nature of not being able to address that gender-based issue, that puts that female employee, as an example, at increased risk versus their male counterpart. So I, I, it's that kind of frame that I would look into. It's the same thing with age. We don't want to create circumstances where we're we're looking at at a situation and saying, "Well, I'm never going to allow a person of a specific age to perform an activity." It means if we were to to have individuals at that age group perform that activity, is are we being mindful of would they need more rest periods? Would we need to alter the design of that work or add some additional controls that are a little bit unique to that age group versus kind of the, the generic population that would help control risk. So the way that I always kind of look at it is if you get the individual to begin to self-assess as a first point, then they're involved in, a, in kind of recognizing the issue and, and being included in the resolution as opposed to management coming down and kind of labeling people. Um, because that will definitely, that could be construed as a way of, of discriminating certain individuals over others. Next question. Uh, would you be able to share more content from that modified risk assessment template? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I, I just want to make sure that I understood. So if this is the one that um, I, I was showing earlier in the presentation from my, my past experience. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to share uh, that information with you. So if we, uh, if we capture that, you know, individuals, if they're interested, we can fire, fire that off and share it. I'm, I'm more than happy to do so. Absolutely. Thanks. No, we can, we can document who that was and get you the, that particular information. Uh, moving on, worker FLHAs are usually just a checkbox exercise and yet industry and regulators place great weight in them. They're fundamentally useless to the worker in this uh, attendee's experience. How do we fix this? Yeah, that you know, I I, I can I can feel the the frustration in that question because I've been there. Um, yeah, I think you know a part of it is in in my experience, part of the frustration behind it is, first of all, um, it was it was as I was talking about earlier, is a lot of the workers believe that the field level pre-task risk assessment is is not very helpful because they see it as a barrier to actually getting the job done right and and i think in in some ways the reason that they feel that way is they they have to go through and they have to tick off all these boxes 
but my question would be, are they, do they have the resources that are actually needed to address the risks in, in the way that we know they need to be addressed to, to contribute to harm? Because I think it, or, or that, can, that can contribute to harm if we don't control them. And I think the reason behind that is, in my view, like in a lot of ways, you know, you'll check off that risk assessment and it almost feels from some frontline employees that this is kind of held up as, uh, you know, if something goes wrong, they can go back to it and say, you did not do this, this, or this. So I, how to address it, that's a, a great question. I think it starts with um, being realistic. I think organizations need to be realistic in terms of what they're asking people to do and then are they really giving people, you know, the frontline employees the time and the resources to actually control the risks as they should be controlled? Otherwise, we're, we're going through the motions um, and we're creating paper, but it's not really helping the frontline employee uh, do what they need to do. So, you know, I, I, unfortunately, that probably didn't answer the question. But um, uh, for me, it really starts with being realistic on, on what, what we're asking people to check off and are we really helping them? Uh, con control those hazards that they identify. Right. Next one has a little bit of a similar theme as far as someone who finds something maybe not as useful as another. Um, so it asks, how do we tell an auditor inspector that a tool is not that useful? And how do we not get dinged for, quote, not doing what everyone else does, unquote? Um, the questioner says, for most of these auditors, inspectors, documentation like paperwork is just key to staying in compliance. Yeah, yeah, you know what? Um, it's a great question. Uh, it's one of those things, right, where from a regulator's perspective, they're going in and they're looking for documentation to prove that something exists. Um, do regulatory inspectors go that level below and really say, does that does the process that you're actually documenting work? Um, in my experience, a lot of them do not, right? And that's unfortunately a burden that's left on on the the company. You know, a, a, a lot of times, uh, a lot of organizations don't want to go down this route. They feel that it might open them up to um, a little bit of of legal exposure. But in some cases, um, you know, maybe maybe it's not directly with the exposure, but through uh, an industry association or or through uh, a group like the National Safety Council, that we can engage in a conversation, a dialogue with regulatory inspectors to say, you know, we understand what you're looking for from a tick the box, make sure the documentation is there. But as as a group, like an, a group of of industries, we're struggling with the effectiveness of that. Can we work together? Uh, to to find that and and I would say one of the one of the benefits from the regulator side is they see a lot um, they see a lot of examples of good and bad um, that's not to say that they're going to be uh, forthcoming with those recommendations but I think if we set up the right environment um, where we can have that dialogue um, maybe that will help one organization. Uh, pick up and leverage a best practice from somewhere else, but uh, it's it's a great question. Um, balancing those interests is is particularly difficult. What if the end user lies about their behavior? Well, it, it, you know what? Again, it for me the way that I would I would present it to that end user is who who is that wh what is that lie who is that lie benefiting, right? And I think again, it's you know. It, it starts with a degree of trust. If the end user believes that the information that they're going to disclose in an assessment or a self-assessment is going to be used in a punitive manner, um, like the, the management team is gonna look at that and go, oh, well, we have a problem with this individual, now we have to, we have to rectify it, then they're not going to disclose it. And you're going to get a process where everybody looks great and we don't have any, any uh, any particular issues, you know, whether that be on individual factors or otherwise. So I think it starts with the ability to uh, have that level of trust. And that, that is not something that's, you know, snap your fingers and it'll happen. I think it ha it, it ha it's, it's an arduous process, but I think it starts there. I think the idea of self-assessment is really, I'm allowing you to dictate, like to, to disclose what you think is different about you that that we need to know or you need to know to help you manage risk in, in your work. Um, 
and and then providing resources. So really, it's providing the ownership and and the onus on the individual to say, I'm giving you uh, a little bit more autonomy to to address the things that you need to. But but it also requires that you know the organization is a little bit more open and doesn't necessarily jump um, toward the worst case scenario in all cases. And and that's you know a very um, idealized response. I re- I realize that, but uh, I think it starts with trust. Well, we're winding down. We've got time for one more question. Um, and that's how do you factor complacency into recognition of hazards and more importantly, take action before an employee starts work operation? Yeah, you know what? It, it's a great, that, that's, that's a definite challenge, right? If you have individuals that have done the same task over and over and over again, um, there, there is that idea of complacency. I think the, the only way to, to really do that is maybe to, um, you know, is to, to get involved and to stop that process as the work's going on and really have, have really honest conversations with individuals about, you know, uh, what did you recognize? What didn't you recognize? Why didn't you recognize it? What could we do to kind of create that mental trigger for that individual? Um, uh, it's, it's really, I, I don't think there's one way to do it. It, it. I think it starts with getting more people involved and, and from kind of an EHS professional standpoint, I think it's, it's approaching those kind of situations from a learning perspective, not from a, Hey, you didn't do this. You're not following process, but being a little bit more open. And, and the first question saying, Hey, I noticed you didn't do this. I've seen it in other places. Can you kind of walk me through why you don't think that's that's a concern? Because I think the other thing that we have to recognize is, um, you know, the people that do these tasks day in and day out, they are probably much more familiar with with hazards that that EHS professionals might not see, um, and they've come up with ways to to uh, resolve them and work around them. So they're a wealth of of knowledge. I think it really starts with having that fruitful in you know conversation and and ensuring that the frontline employee doesn't feel that they're going to be slapped on the wrist um, if they're, they're open about um, the way that they see uh, the risk assessment process. I think what that might reveal to us is it doesn't necessarily work for them and are there small ways that we can tweak it to make sure that it, it resonates with those individuals. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to our speaker. Uh, Once again, we hope you take the time to fill out the forthcoming evaluation survey and give us your feedback on today's presentation. Uh, With that, we end today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. Again, we'd like to thank Sean Baldry, everyone at Quarity, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, and have a great day and a safe holiday weekend.